Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a New York Times best-selling novelist whose books have sold 10 million copies and have been translated into 29 languages. Born and raised in London, she tried her hand in fashion and as a receptionist, but was in her mid-twenties before realising what she really wanted to be was an author. A bet with a friend pushed her to write the first three chapters of her novel Ralph's Party, which became the UK's best-selling debut of 1999. She started out writing novels about relationships, but has since become known for her addictive, absorbing, dark psychological thrillers. Lisa Jewell, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to have you here. Now, the book that we are talking about today, as well as your life, is called None of This is True, but it's about somebody being a birthday twin. And what we've discovered in the first few minutes of meeting each other is that we live on the same communal garden. We have both have similar dogs. We have children of the same age. There are a lot of <laughs> a lot yes. of um, similarities. Plus, there's podcasts in your book. So yes, just... yes. I think we should start stalking each other immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's all getting a bit better, isn't it? But we started off in very different places in life, and that's what I'd like to know about, is your background. Tell me where you were born, in London, but not of particularly bookish parents. Uh, very much not bookish parents. I was born very close to where we're sitting right now, in the Middlesex Hospital, uh, which no longer exists. But yes, I was born there in 1968. My father was a textile agent, so he worked in the West End selling fabric from Italian mills to English clothing manufacturers. My mother was a stay-at-home mum until we were a bit older and then she became a secretary. She worked at estate agents part-time. She read a lot, but I wouldn't call her bookish. She always had a book in her hand, but our house had no books in it at all, apart from one tiny little bookshelf of... um, those readers digest condensed reads, those oh, hardback ones with yeah. <laughs> so we had we had one tiny bookshelf set aside for the the readers digest condensed reads. <laughs> but no, we we were a family of readers, but we weren't bookish. It was very commercial fiction flying around our house. It was um yeah. and libraries. We went to the library every week, and it was a short walk from our house. Thankfully, because our house wasn't a short walk from anywhere really. And yeah, we were kind of brought up in our in our little branch library in Totteridge out in North London. And my mum always loved reading and that just sort of extended through to us. I've got two sisters, both younger than me. I think that's where I really discovered loving books. So Totteridge is a funny place. Uh, yes. Because it, well, it's kind of quite glamorous in lots of ways, oh. isn't it? There's lots of big houses and rich people yeah. and kind of, sort of B-list slebs. Totteridge is a ridiculous place. It used to be called <laughs> the Beverly Hills of London back in the 1970s when I was a child growing up there. And it has got loads of like sprawling mansions and, and supercars parked in gravel driveways. And it's slightly on the edge of tacky, slightly on the edge of tacky. <laughs> but it was also a functional farming village back in the day and I was brought up in one of the little tiny cottages that would have been built for the farm workers back in the 1800s so a tiny little two up two down cottage that my parents extended into a three up three down cottage over the years so now despite your weekly library visits and your interest in reading it was actually art that you went to study although you'd done very well in creative writing at school yes so I was a horrifically shy child painfully, awkwardly. I was pigeon-toed. I was clumsy. I was socially awkward. I was physically awkward. And I was very, very unacademically gifted or 
academically ungifted. <laughs> but the one thing that I was good at was writing. And I had a very good relationship with my English teacher at primary school. She loved me. And then I went to secondary school. I went to a very high achieving grammar school in North London called St Michael's. I don't know how I got in because I was so painfully average. And yeah, it was the only subject I enjoyed was English. I wasn't good at anything else at all. Um, so why did you go into art? Oh, I just... And this is an interesting thing, having children at a point in their lives when they should be making, you know, crucial decisions about where they're heading in life. I, I didn't have a clue where I was heading in life. So because I was at this very, very high-achieving grammar school, there was this obvious sort of assumption that you would turn up and do your A-levels after you'd done your O-levels. And I spent one day in the sixth form and I came home. It was a induction day, so I came home halfway through the day and I said to my mum, I'm never going back there. And she put me in the car and she drove me up to Barnet College, our local further education college, and asked what places they still had available on courses. And they had a place available on the Art Foundation BTEC course. And they interviewed me and gave me that place. So I started there instead of doing my A-levels. So I spent two years at Barnet College doing my BTEC. And then at the end of that BTEC, I nearly got thrown off that BTEC because I really wasn't working hard enough and I didn't find anything in the course I found I was passionate enough about. Um, but I managed to claw my way back onto the course. And then at the end of the course, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And a bunch of my friends were going down to Epsom in Surrey to visit the Epsom School of Art and Design. There was this new course that just opened called Fashion Promotion and Communication, which is just as random as it sounds. And I just went for the jolly. I went for the day. And then I got there. I thought, this is lovely. It was a really lovely little art college. I really like the tutors. I like the sound of the course. So I applied for that. And all my friends were going. So that was why I ended up doing the weird fashion promotion and communication course. And then I finished that two years later having applied for lots of jobs in the fashion industry and had been accepted for a job in the pattern room at Warehouse in their head office in City Road. So I left college on the Friday and I started work on the Monday. And that's how I ended up working in the fashion industry. So I didn't have any career in mind. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And when you were in fashion, did you think, oh, this is it and this is what I want to do? I guess so. I mean, I was still in my early 20s. I was still so much more focused then on... I was desperate, desperate to settle down with a man. So horribly desperate to settle down with a man at that point in my life. And you found one in yes. the classifieds. And I did. And then I, I, I was just so fed up of, like, clubbing and partying and men letting me down left, right and centre that I thought I'd try something different, which was to look at the classified ads, the Lonely Hearts, in the back of Loot newspaper, of all places. Just, yeah, there was this really nice ad and I thought he sounded interesting. So What did I, he say in the ad? He said, male 23 likes Tom Waits, Thai food and picnics. <laughs> or romantic male. I thought, that's what I want. I want a romantic male and I want to go on picnics and I want to settle down and get... I mean, it's quite, I mean, it's bizarre when I think of it now, particularly having a daughter the same age as I was when I was having all these thoughts about wanting to settle down and thinking how young she is and how horrified I'd be if she came home and told me she'd met a man in the Lonely Hearts and was going to marry him. Um, but that's what happened. So I met him. He wasn't my type, but he offered me all the other things I wanted, adoration and exclusivity and commitment and so he asked me to marry him very quickly after I met him and I agreed and we got married a year to the day after our first date. Yeah, so that turned into a um, one of the biggest learning curves or learning experiences of my life because he was a coercive controller. So I ended up in a very, very bleak marriage for four years in my early 20s with this man. 
Who didn't even allow you a key for your own front door. Didn't have a key for my own front door, did not have a telephone. We didn't have a telephone in our house and there were no mobile phones at that point because this was the early 90s. So I was very cut off from everything. I, I was born and bred in London. My heart is with London. That If anybody had ever said, would you like to live somewhere else apart from London? I'd have said, no, I'm going to live in London until I die. But he dragged me down to Walton-on-Thames in Surrey, which is a very nice place, but not where I wanted to be living as a, a young woman. I wanted to be in London. So that was a very, very bleak time of my life. But I came out of that experience with so much more certainty about who I was, what I wanted, what I didn't want, where I was headed. And I, great material for future books. And actually, we'll yes, yeah. great material for future books, yes. Yeah. But you met somebody that you did fall in love with. Yes, and that that was amazing, actually. So I'd been out of work for about eight months. I'd been on the dole, living out in the suburbs with this controlling husband. And I went for a job that was advertised in the Lady magazine, actually, as a receptionist for Thomas Pink, the shirt makers at their head office in Battersea. And I got that job. So very excitedly, after eight months of just sort of lolling around the house in, in Walton-on-Thames all by myself, feeling sorry for myself, I got on the train, I went to Battersea, the office manager took me around the offices to introduce me to everyone. There were only about 30 people and brought me into the I guess what you call the computer room back then. Computers were still quite new at that point and introduced me to the contractor who just arrived and I just looked at him and I thought, it's you, it's you, there you are, there you are and now I just need to make sure that this happens somehow or other. I just totally knew that he was going to be my man for the rest of my life at and that is point. He still? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been together for well that was 1995 and we got together in 1996. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Yes. We're going to talk about writing now because this all came about as a bet. Yes. And this was very shortly after I met I I left husband number 1 and started dating husband number 2 and around Six months to eight months into our relationship, we went on a big group holiday with all of his friends to Malta. And one of the things I'd done to celebrate getting out of the suburbs and, and leaving my husband and being back in, in the free world, allowed to do whatever the hell I wanted to do without asking anyone's permission, was to do um, evening classes in creative writing. So I just completed a course of evening classes in creative writing. I was feeling quite buoyant after that because I'd had a lot of really positive feedback from other people on the course who said I had a very commercial voice and that I should write a novel. And then I ended up on this holiday in Malta with my new boyfriend and all of his friends, one of whom was a journalist, a girl called Yasmin. And she cornered me one night and she just wanted to know I didn't have a job in London at that time. I'd just been made redundant from my job at Thomas Pink. And she cornered me and wanted me to know what my intentions were. What are you going to do? You know, you haven't got a job to go back to. Are you going to change your life now? And I said, no, I think I'm going to sign up with some temping agencies and see if I can get another secretarial job that way. And she said, come on, you know, there must be, I was like pushing 27, which I think is quite a pivotal age for a lot of people where they really think they should be sort of set on a journey. She said, this could be the moment where you could change your life. There must be something you've always wanted to do. And I found myself telling her something I'd never said to anybody else in my whole life. I said, I think I'd quite like to write a novel but then immediately gave her 20 reasons why I couldn't write a novel most of which revolved around the fact that I thought I was too young and she was the one who said listen you don't have to write the whole novel but at least try write three chapters and if you write three chapters I'll take you out for dinner to your favorite restaurant and we shook hands did a little gentleman's bet gentlewoman's bet got back from Malta and I wrote three chapters and 
yeah, those were the first three chapters of Ralph's party. So thank you, Yasmin. <laughs> so you sent that out to a load of agents. You didn't really hear. You got rejection letters. Yes. The last one then accepts you and then you start on this journey. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary for a debut novel to get that mm. much interest. I mean, were you completely bowled over by I that? Still, when I look back at those years, so from early 1998 when I got the agent and the agent got me the publishing deal with Penguin and it was a really nice publishing deal, particularly for a young woman like me who'd never earned any money, I suddenly felt like, wow, I'm actually a serious person now. Through to the publication the following year, May 1999, it came out. All that way through, I thought someone's made a horrible mistake. Mm -hmm. Someone is going to ask me for the money back. Someone's going to say, we've changed our minds. We're not going to publish it. It just felt so unlikely and extraordinary that this was happening to me. And then it came out in May 1999. And then the, the ridiculousness continued that it just got this hugely positive reception across a, such a broad range of, of media as well. All the broadsheets reviewed it and loved it. It was on the late review. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. It used to be on BBC Two at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night or something. My ex-boyfriend used to produce it. Actually. Oh, I wonder if he was producing it when I when they featured Ralph's party. Yeah, so they featured Ralph's party and I was expecting everybody to laugh at it because they were all serious writers and journalists and they all loved it. Tom Paulin, Tony Parsons, Bonnie Greer, Mark Lawson all loved it. And then, lo and behold, it went on to enter the charts at number four. It went up to number three. It sold a quarter of a million copies in the first year. Yeah, it was ridiculous to me, extraordinary. And, and for those first sort of two or three years from signing the contract to publishing my second novel just felt like some sort of crazy fairy tale dream. And now, I mean, sort of 20 novels or whatever it is later, do you still feel that imposter syndrome? And do you feel like the same person that wrote Ralph's Party? I do not feel an imposter syndrome. Absolutely not. I absolutely own that I'm a successful commercial novelist who has published 21 novels, all of which have been received very well and sold lots of copies. And as much as in the moment of writing, I often feel like I've lost my way and I'm out of control control and it's chaos and why did I ever do this? Why can't I just go and be a gardener instead? I still, no, I don't feel like an imposter. I really don't. I do feel like I'm a proper grown-up novelist who deserves her place <laughs> in the world of publishing. And, and how have you changed from that first novel? I mean, because you're no longer, you started with romantic fiction, yeah. really, and now it's much, much darker. Yes. But interestingly, when I sat down to write my first novel for that bet with Yasmin, because I'd just come out of this very dark marriage and my head was still very full of it, I was still having nightmares, constantly having nightmares that I was marrying him again. <sighs> I was still haunted. I just assumed that that's what my first novel would be about. I was ready to go in dark, dark, dark with my first novel. And I love dark genres anyway in, in film and books and TV. And that's just not what came out of me. It didn't come out to me at that time. It wasn't the novel that was there for me. And, you know, you can only write the novel that you're going to write. And so the novel I wrote was not. It wasn't saccharin. It wasn't like, you know, ridiculously girly, over-the-top romantic fiction. There was a lot of grit and reality in there and it was quite quirky and edgy. And that's what I became known for and that was, that was my place in publishing at that time was to write those sorts of novels. But because I've always been really lucky to have very trusting editors and really loyal readers as well, I was able to just grow up incrementally with each book. Not grow up, but just evolve, mm. just evolve without anybody saying, I, I really wish you hadn't done that, or please, can the next novel be more like the last novel, or 
please, can you can we have some more rope? Nobody's ever said, don't do that, stick to a formula. Everybody's just accepted everything that I've brought out each time a new book comes out. And so I've managed to do it without anybody noticing, really, <laughs> step I mean, by step. <laughs> it is quite unusual, though, because writers often have to change their names I know. if they change genres. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult process, but it works so amazingly. This book... Blew me away. I read it in one sitting. I spent all day yesterday basically lying in bed. <laughs> I love it. Reading None of This Is True. And it just, it was absolutely compulsive. So one of the things that I really liked about it, or that drew me to it, of course, is that it's about a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> but you do that really cleverly in that we see the kind of script of the, or the, the transcripts of the podcast interviews. But you've got a kind of double thing going on here with a Netflix film of the podcast yeah. of the incident. Tell us <laughs> about that sort of triple layer. Yes, I mean that happened again as as most of the things in my books happen like by chance sort of I organically by fluke by just by necessity actually more to the point most of the decisions in my books that look like I sort of sat there thinking what would make for a brilliant book oh I know and started making a list of brilliant things actually come to me while I'm writing the book because I know it's not working and I need to do something quickly to fix it. And that was very much the case with this. So It's not a podcast format book because I know that might actually put a lot of readers off because I think a lot of readers are maybe a little bit fed up of the podcast format sort of book. So it's not not transcripts, he said, she said. No, Um, not at all. It's it's a proper narrative, back and forth. The scenes change between these two women, the podcaster and her subject. And the subject is Josie Fair and she's quite weird and unsettling and the reader is very much party to how weird and unsettling she is because they're reading her chapters. The podcaster Alex is not quite, it takes her a while to catch up to find out that she shouldn't have let this woman into her life in the first place. So those first few sort of say maybe 10 to 12 chapters that I wrote, I really enjoyed writing them because there was all this weird unsettling detail and Josie was just ramping it up page by page, moment by moment, behaving more and more strangely. But I was also very aware of the fact that um, the reader might be thinking, well, what's going on here? Why am I watching these two women recording a podcast together? And there was no peril. There was no sense of jeopardy. There was no sense that this was a, a thriller. So, But for the reader, very early on, oh, you start to fiddle. Prickles oh, up and prick- down your... Prickles is fine. <laughs> and I was very happy with the prickles. Yeah. I thought I'd left it in the prickle zone for too long. And I needed to bring in something to make the reader really realise why they had to stick with the book. And so I thought, and I've, as, as we all have been over the last few years, been watching some of these incredible Netflix documentaries about these bizarre people and these weird crimes and quite often uh, scammers and Tinder swindlers and don't F with cats, abducted in plain sight and just people behaving in ways and making decisions you cannot believe that they made. And you're almost screaming at the screen to say, don't let that person in. Or and So I suddenly thought, this is kind of what this feels like to me. It feels like one of those documentaries. So I thought, how about if I seed some little scenes from throughout a documentary that was made two years post the events of the book and introduce subsidiary characters who have some sort of deeper darker, more dramatic insight into what was happening in those much quieter early chapters. So, yeah, I brought those in kind of after the event because just just to ramp it up a little bit. 
Well, it works incredibly <laughs> well. And I mean, I can see various things and, and also reading about your other books. There, there are themes that come through from both your previous work, but also from, from your own life. I mean, there's coercion and yeah. coercive marriages here. The fact that this woman alleges she doesn't have a key for her own home, just as you did. A lot of teenagers in your work and in this one too, and teen pregnancies. Just tell me about that. Oh, the teen pregnancy. Although, actually, was she a teenager when she had a... I can't remember, but I'm, yeah, I'm obsessed with writing about teenagers. I I think I've been waiting all my career to write about teenagers. In my earlier books, when there were small children involved, I found it really tedious because you do sort of tend to write about where you are in your own life. That's just a natural thing, I think. And in my earlier books, when I was writing about smaller children and younger children, I just... I was always trying to age them up a little bit and make them behave a little bit older than they were and they were all a bit precocious and doing things that were slightly too old for their ages because I was just waiting to be in the zone where I could start writing about teenagers because I just had this moment when my own children became teenagers of feeling like I'd reconnected with myself in a way because I don't remember much about being a child. I've just not held on to a lot of child, not for any trauma, but I just not held on to much of a sense of who I was as a child or memories of being a child. But I remember being a teenager so vividly and I have such a strong affection for myself as a teenager and who I was and how awkward I was and the journey I was going on and discovering who I was and hobbies and obsessions and all that stuff. So yeah, I hold a deep affection for my teenage self and I hold a really deep affection for my teenage children. I'm enjoying them being teenagers so much more than I enjoyed any other bit of parenting them. And I love writing about teenagers in my books. They're just, they're so raw and they're unformed and they can be everything. They can be, their behaviour changes minute by minute. They change. Teenagers become a completely different person every six months. Mm. They rewrite them, they reprogram themselves um, and they're capable of such sweetness and they're capable of such idiocy and they're capable of such darkness and I just, yeah, I love I love writing about teenagers and there are some very dark teenagers yes. in this book indeed. <laughs> also some very, very finely drawn characters of the adults. I mean, people that, that I felt I knew that I understood. I mean, it helps that you take a very specific location in London, Queen's Park, yeah. which is a lovely area. You can absolutely see those houses, that coffee shop. You know exactly where it is. Yeah. And so you've got this wonderful sense of place. You've got these very, very real people. And then you've got this extraordinary story that you write in such a way that it's completely believable. You could see that <laughs> this could happen. It creeps up on you suddenly. And in fact, at the end of the book, you say that that was a really dramatic delivery, that you wrote this yeah. book incredibly fast. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I kind of came to it knowing... Well, there were two things that informed the speed at which I wrote this book. First of all, it was a much simpler format than a lot of my books. I usually overcomplicate my books. I bring in way too many characters, timelines, backstories, four stories, flashbacks. And the last book I wrote, The Family Remains, was a real example of that. Not only did it have four different points of view and four different storylines and backstories and four stories, but it was also all over the world. So I had lots of different time zones to deal with. So I went to it thinking, I'm shrinking it right down with this one. I'm going to have a little corner of London and I'm just going to keep it really simple. So that made it quicker to write. But I also knew I had a a much shorter amount of time to write it than I normally do because I'd undertaken a commission with another publisher to write a second novel in the same year. I mean, this was the first one I had to write that year. So 
usually when I start writing a novel, I'm very kind to myself. I just think, well, I've got all year, you know, I can take the day off on Thursday and go and have lunch with a friend or, oh, I've had a bit of a lazy day today. I've only written 200 words. Never mind, I can make up for it tomorrow. But I didn't have that approach with this. I started writing it thinking, come on, go, get those words on the page. You've only got a few months. And so I was writing 2,000 words a day from the get-go, which is extraordinary for me. And yeah, so I just think everything conspired for me to write it in a very different way to the road. I normally give myself so much time to Mm. work out what the book's going to be about and get to know my characters. And so a lot of my books have quite a slow burn build up before you get to the meat of the book, whereas this is quite immediate. I think you know where you are. Yeah, bang, (laughs) I mean, it's really interesting to me, when you're a writer of your stature, when you've got 10 million books in print, when you've got this legion of fans... Is there some kind of extra added layer of responsibility where basically you are not you solely, but you are part of what's keeping your publisher afloat, your agent afloat. You have now become part of that machine. If you decide actually you want six months off, you're actually screwing a lot of people. I'm so very, very, very aware of that. And in fact, yeah, no, I'm really, really aware of that. And, And luckily, when you're in the position that I'm in, when you're one of the key titles that your publisher publishes every year and you're a key source of income for your agency, you are treated in a way that makes that quite pleasant in a way. You're handled very softly and, and gently and with a lot of love and affection to sort of balance out that pressure that you do. You you have to know that. You mm. have to know that it's not up to your whim and the muse and the, you know, the, the feeling in, in the air on a particular day when you wake up. No, it's nothing to do with that. You've got to write the book yeah. because so much hinges on the book and it's got to be a good book. I mean, I would write a good book even if nobody was going to read it because the thought of like just churning something out and not being happy with it and being being out at, out there in the world and anybody picking up one of my books and thinking, well, she just churned that out. She obviously didn't care. <laughs> I hate the thought of that. But no, it is, it is a lot of pressure. They do make it very easy for you. And I am very, very aware of it. But it's an interesting point in my writing career because I just turned 55. So I'm thinking I can't do this into my into my old age. I can't be writing a book a year and be part of this and it, this white hot machinery that keeps publishing industry ro- rolling around year after year after year. And I'm a key component, as you say. I'm a key part of that machinery. I can't be part of it going into my 60s. I just can't. That just seems crazy. So I am sort of a thing, imagining like maybe another five years of this. I'll turn 60 and then maybe I can write a book every two years. And then maybe my publication won't be a big deal and they'll just publish it because they like me. <laughs> but you could also do like the Dick Francis thing where your franchise kind of continues. Somebody else just keeps, oh. <laughs> keeps writing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'd like to see somebody try and write a book the way I write a book, the title and utter <laughs> chaos of it. <laughs> this book is called None of This Is True and we are left absolutely not knowing. I mean, it's... Well, I could. I could tell you everything you want to know about what is true because I do know what is true. Okay. I'm not going to on this podcast. Obviously. We are going to finish this interview immediately because I need <laughs> you to need know. To know. <laughs> Lisa Jewell, many thanks for coming to speak to me. None of This Is True is by Lisa Jewell. It's published by Cornerstone. It's out now and it's fabulous. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Music.